Okay, so this semester we're going to be walking through biblical themes. So this is in the, the kind of theological bucket of what's typically called biblical theology, where you take a subject and you trace it throughout the canon from uh, Genesis to Revelation. So we're going to do that just with different primary themes throughout the scriptures. And one of the reasons we're doing that is because the Bible uh, is not a collection of 66 random books that someone threw together to just make Christianity's kind of religious book. But rather, the scriptures, the Bible, is one story that is ultimately about Jesus. One story that is ultimately about Jesus, the Son of the living God. And that reality is actually what's best for us. It is a good thing that the Bible is not about you and not about me. You will find your life rightly positioned as you see the story of history being about Jesus and not about you. And so one of the things we're going to see over and over and over again as we trace all these different themes from Genesis to Revelation is how the centerpiece, they find their ultimate meaning in Jesus Christ. So that's one reason we want to do that. We want to know God's word. We want to see God's word rightly, see his son rightly. We want to, uh, when you're studying individual passages, uh, just know what is the big story that this fits into. Okay, so when you're wrestling through Leviticus, starting your Bible reading plans, when you're wrestling through numbers and things like that, to be able to stop and think, what does these two chapters, how do they fit in the ultimate one story that God is proclaiming about his son? We want to to be able to study the scriptures, and then we want to be the people of Psalm 1. So God has given us the Psalms as kind of like the prayer book of the Bible, if you want to call it that, this, this picture of 150 Psalms that show man wrestling with God, bringing his emotions before the Lord, meditating on the character of God, and having our sinful hearts transformed. And Psalm 1 is kind of positioned to show us the doorway into the Psalms. Okay, so look at Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Blessed is the man, man or woman, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, the scriptures. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruits in its seasons, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. So right at the beginning of the Psalms, God is giving us a picture of his people. How are we meant to have deep roots where we're not just ripped out of the ground when the stormy winds of bad circumstances come? How are we meant to bear fruit all the time, right, in due season? How are we meant to not wither Meditating on God's word, knowing God's word, drinking in deeply the word of our God and delighting in it. Don't miss that part. Not just being disciplined and reading a whole lot, but delighting, having your affections rewired to where you long to consume the word of the living God so that your heart might be transformed. That's another reason we're looking at biblical themes. Two more reasons. One is that, quite simply, we see our God correctly, rightly, and we see ourselves rightly. John Calvin, uh, the great reformer, says at the beginning of his uh, big theology book, the Institutes of Christian Religion, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, two things. 
knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. All wisdom consists of knowing who God is and knowing who you are, knowing where God fits in the story of Scripture and knowing where you fit in the story of Scripture. Again, like I said earlier, it's good news that the story is about Jesus and not about you. It will help you position yourself rightly in this world and be wise. And then lastly, to simply just delight in Jesus, our Savior. The story is about him. Everything was made by him and for him. Our affections are meant to be centered on him. We want to look at his word and simply delight in him. There's this incredible story at the end of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus has gone to the cross, he's been crucified, and he's been raised, and he meets these two disciples on the Emmaus Road. They're walking home, and he meets them, and they don't know who he is, and they're talking with him about these events that have just happened, and they don't recognize that he's Jesus. And Luke gives us this incredible summary where Jesus begins from Genesis all the way till that point and opens up the scriptures about how they are all about him. Starting with Moses and the prophets, Jesus shows them how all the scriptures are about him. He's saying what we're saying, right? The Bible is a story about me. And he goes and has a meal with them. And when he breaks bread, they realize who he is and he disappears. And they say this line, Luke 24, 32. They realize that it's Jesus that's been talking with them. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he, while he opened to us the scriptures. As Jesus opens the scriptures and says, it's all about me, their hearts burned within them. Even before they knew who he was, they felt that delight of Psalm 1. And so we want to be a people who delight in our Savior, whose hearts burn with the sweetness of their Savior as we see him as the center of the scriptures. So we're going to look at a lot of these throughout this semester. One final note When we say something is a theme of the scriptures, that does not mean you will find it on every single page of the Bible, okay? So we're we're talking about red threads that you can trace from Genesis to Revelation. So if you look at, I'll give you an example. If you look at my life, you could say a theme of my life is preaching or teaching. That does not mean, you know, you will not find me not doing this. You will find me eating. You will find me sleeping, right? But you could look at my life and see, wow, he talked a lot as a young boy, as if he had something he needed to say. And then that never kind of went away, and people kind of got sick of it. And then God put his gospel in his mouth, and then he did it for a living, right? You could see that theme traced throughout my life. And so similar in the scriptures, we're going to look at something like the kingdom today. That doesn't mean if you just do this and look at a random page in the Bible, you will find Jesus the king went about and you know, establish the kingdom, but you will see the, the kind of macro theme. Same when we look at covenants, same when we look at marriage, things like that. Uh, and so we're looking at the big overarching themes. And today we'll look at the first theme, which is the kingdom of God. Most uh, scholars today will say this is the main theme. In fact, there's a lot of scholars that say it's not even really a theme. It's the structure of the scriptures that all other themes hang on. Okay, so this is, this is a really uh, a big one. We could do a whole semester on the kingdom, but today we're just going to do a 10,000-foot flyover. Uh, but I have, at the end, I have resources at the end of your notes. If you want to do a deeper dive into this, I've, I've got some good books there uh, for you to read. So when we talk about the kingdom, what we're referring to is God's reign, God's rule, God's authority. 
Okay, so, so not every passage will say, God the king did this, but it will say God sits on his throne. And it will say the authoritative one, the one who judges with right judgment, the one who uh, has dominion over all things. So God's reign, God's rule, God's authority. Uh, uh, a definition from uh, Patrick Schreiner that I think is a good, helpful, simple one is, the kingdom of God is God's power over God's people in God's place. God's power over God's people in God's place. So we're looking at his, his reign, his rule as the sovereign king of the universe. So let's dive into the scriptures and look at these kind of main themes. If you open your Bible to page one, to Genesis one, you see in the beginning, God. The first character you encounter in the beginning is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the ruler of rulers whose throne is established from old. And then you see that king declare his kingdom into being. Look at Genesis 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light, and God saw that the light was good. So the first thing we really see about God is, one, he's eternal. Before there was anything, there was him. And then secondly, he has the authority to speak, and whatever is there listens. This one has authority, this one reigns, and this one rules. And we see him speak the beginnings of his kingdom. We see in Genesis 1 the, the, the creation account of God kind of creating his kingdom, and it is good. It reflects the character of the king. And then as he's creating the, the sky and filling it with stars and the waters and filling it with fish and the land and filling it with beasts, we see this a peculiar move where he creates man and woman, this kind of separated creation that's made in his image and after his likeness. Look at this, because this is absolutely foundational for understanding the idea of the kingdom and how we relate to the kingdom in God's creation. Genesis 1, 26 through 31. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. Let them have rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, right? Everything has just been created. Let this, these man and woman that are created in my image have dominion over it, to oversee it, to rule over it, and the livestock over the earth and everything that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, spread out over creation and subdue it. Take dominion over it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Verse 31, and God saw everything he had made and behold, it was very good. So we see a lot here. First of all, in, in God's creation in, this, in, in the garden, it's almost this picture of kind of a cosmic uh, temple. So in the ancient world, you know, depending on what nation you are, every nation uh, believes in gods. Atheism is a very, 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 very recent development in the scope of human history. Every nation has their gods and every nation has a temple. And the idea of a, a temple is it's where heaven, the realm of the gods, and earth, the realm of man, meet which is why you would have priests that kind of mediate between the heavens and earth. And in those pagan temples, you would have an idol. 
And that idol is meant to be a representation of the gods of the heavens. You look at the idol and say, oh, that's, uh, that's Baal, or that's you know, Asherah, whoever, because I look at this idol and that's a representation of the gods who are dwelling in this temple that they thought. Obviously, we believe there's one god, but who you know, Canaan and other, other pagan nations believed was where their gods dwelt. And so the garden here, we get this kind of picture of a cosmic temple where heaven and earth are one place. God and man are dwelling together, and what's the idol in this cosmic temple? What's the image in this cosmic temple that represents God? It's you. It's me. In this cosmic temple, you look at man and woman, and you say, there's the representatives of God, those made in his image after his likeness, those who creation is supposed to look at and say, who reigns here? Oh, I see. Okay, Yahweh reigns here, because there's his humans, right, who are made in his image, almost as if we're these uh, images set up in the cosmic temple. So see that first thing, we're made in his image, we represent him, and you see the creation mandate. What does God tell man and woman they're supposed to do? Fill the earth, almost like this image of push the garden out through over all of creation where there's flourishing and goodness, just like we've seen in Genesis 1. Fill the earth and subdue it, rule it on my behalf. We see this picture in creation of God, the King of kings, the King of the universe, is going to rule his kingdom, rule his creation through his little kings, humans, right? We represent, we reign, have dominion over the earth, over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air on his behalf and for his glory, right? So the earth may be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. A really, really good picture of this is C.S. Lewis. He hones in on this in uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. You see, Narnia is Aslan's, right? The lion who represents Jesus. He literally, in the magician's nephew, sings it into being, right? He creates it by singing this glorious song and Narnia comes. But who sits on the throne? Who rules over Narnia? The sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, they reign on his behalf. It's supposed to be good. When there's a wicked ruler like the, like the white witch, it's always winter, but never Christmas, right? It's horrible. But when the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve reign, there's flourishing, right, on behalf of Aslan's name. There's even a, there's a quote in Prince Caspian where Truffle Hunter, talking badger, is talking to a dwarf named Nicobrick. Uh, we're, my wife's pregnant. We're going to name our, our son Nicobrick. That's a joke. Uh, and he, the badger says this, uh, yes, this is not man's country, speaking of Narnia, it's not man's country, but it's a country for man to be king of. And that's the picture we see in creation. God, in his mysterious wisdom, says, I'm going to create my kingdom and create my people, made in my image, to reign and rule on my behalf. They represent me. They represent my character. Where they go, flourishing will go as they push the garden out, and the goodness of creation will fill the earth and will glorify my name, okay? So we see this this kingdom set up in creation. You and I, man and woman, as little kings, meant to reign and rule on his behalf. And then we see the great disappointment of Genesis 3. You will not get far in your Bible reading plans before you are very disappointed because man rebels against this good king. This good king who scooped up dirt and molded it and breathed life into it and put him in paradise and said, eat of anything except this one thing. The good king gives a decree and the little king, Adam, says, I don't like you being king. 
I don't like you determining what is good and what is evil. I want to determine what is good and what is evil. What does the serpent say? Do this and you will be like God. You get to make the decrees. You can say what's good and what's evil. You can reign and you can rule. And Eve loves that message and Adam loves that message. And they take a bite of the forbidden fruit and they commit treason. They rebel against the true king. This is a coup to say, you are no longer on the throne. I am on the throne of my own life. That's the essence of sin. To say, I know what you've said is this. I don't care. I've got a better plan. And I'm king over my own life. I sit on the throne. And that's what Adam and Eve do. And that's what humanity has been doing ever since. Attempting to dethrone God and enthrone ourselves, and we see the results of this, this treason, is that the kingdom is broken. It's fractured. Heaven and earth no longer meet. God no longer can dwell with man because of his rebellion. And so man is sent out of the garden, and now this creation mandate is fractured as well. Childbirth is going to be painful. Filling the earth is going to be cursed. Subduing the earth is going to be cursed. Thorns and thistles rather than the glorious garden will come out of the ground, and we will no longer rule for his name, but for our name, for the sake of our glory. And we see that the rest of Genesis, if you just keep reading, Cain and Abel, how do they reign and rule? Cain kills Abel. We see this horrible summary in Genesis 6. The Lord looks down on the earth and he sees every intention and thought of man's heart was only evil continually. And we see God's just judgment in the flood and then Noah shows up, right? Noah, and after the ark is delivered, after this incredible deliverance, Noah becomes a man of the vine and plants a garden. Right? You're meant to have these thoughts of, okay, are we, are we starting over? Is this finally Noah's going to do what Adam failed to do? And what happens when Noah is in the garden? He fails. He gets drunk. He gets naked. Right? There's a horrible failure. Is this going to be better? No, the rebellion is still in man's heart. And then ultimately, the, the picture of ultimate rebellion is the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel, they're supposed to fill the earth and so do it for God's name and look at Genesis 11. Just, just hear the rebellion in this verse. They said, come, let us build our, ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth, lest we have to obey his command to fill the earth and subdue it. You see that total inversion of how we are meant to reign and rule in the name of the King of Kings. Now we reign and rule in our name. It's absolute rebellion. I'm on the throne of my own heart, not God. So though we're still made in his image, now we reign for our own name, not for his name. Unthinkable rebellion in the beginning of the scriptures. And yet, even though man is high-handedly trying to dethrone God as king, God is unthinkably merciful. Rather than destroying all of humanity and his creation, he promises almost instantly in Genesis 3.15, one day from the woman will come someone who will crush the head of the serpent. There will come someone who will overthrow the overthrower one day, and he will restore what's been lost here. In this beautiful, good garden kingdom, someone is going to come 
who will restore. He'll crush the enemy. He'll crush the tempter in the garden, remove him, and restore what has been lost. We see that in Genesis 3.15. Then we see throughout Genesis it getting a bit more specific. We see God call Abraham. And now through Abraham's family, there will come an offspring that will bless all the nations. Right? Israel, Abraham, is a part of God's ultimate plan of restoring his kingdom. Though we've rebelled, chapter 2, chapter 3 is the king promises to restore what was lost in the kingdom. So he calls Abraham, says, through you, all the nations will be blessed. Still very broad, and it just gets more kind of specific over time. We see through Abraham's family, the nation of Israel is called to be this holy nation, Okay, this, this set-apart nation where God puts his temple. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. And what Israel was meant to be was an example to the world, right? All of creation. This is what it looks like for God to reign. The temple's here. God dwells with these people. They have the law of God from Mount Sinai. This is what it looks like to follow God's laws and live as a holy nation, a people set Apart, right? The nations were meant to look into Israel, all the nations, and stand in awe and say, Who is your king? Who is your God? Because we must worship him too. And sorry to spoil, I know it's it's January 1st. We're we're in Genesis 1. Bible reading plans are fresh, and I'm just spoiling it for you. It goes horrible. Israel is Adam's son. And time and time and time again, they dethrone God as king. And they want to be king. Not just wanting a king, but wanting a king like all the other nations. We don't want to be your people. We want to be like everyone else. So not only do they not follow their God as king, they follow the other gods. Continual rebellion, almost exhausting rebellion from Genesis to Malachi, and yet all throughout, just like in Genesis 3, though Israel follows Adam's footsteps and continually tries to dethrone God, God, this merciful king, continually promises that one day he will send someone. He will send someone who will be a king, and he will reestablish the throne forever. We saw it in Genesis 3.15. We saw it with Abraham's offspring. We see little random promises or seemingly random promises like Judah, the tribe of Israel, is promised that the scepter will never depart from their tribe. We see a, a, a strange story where Balaam is this witch doctor who's trying to curse Israel and just blessing keeps coming out of his mouth. And in Numbers 24, he blesses saying a king will come from these people. We see in Psalm 2 this picture of the nations raging, wanting to overthrow God, and God sits in thrones in the heavens and laughs and says, I will send a king, and he will bring justice and mercy, and he will put away the enemies, kiss the sun, take refuge in him. You see all these pictures of God is going to send someone who will be a king, and he will put away his enemies, and he will restore what was lost in the garden. He'll restore The kingdom, Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The psalm that Peter quotes in the first sermon ever preached. What is that? God says to someone, someone he's going to send, some king. And again, we get more specific with the Davidic covenant. God comes to David and says, someone's going to come from your line who will be a king and he'll sit on the throne forever. His kingdom will 
never pass away. And then in the book of Daniel, which is the book of all the kingdoms of the world, we see this scene in Daniel 7. I saw in the night a vision. Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man was given dominion. Think about the Christian mandate. Take dominion. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. All these promises of there's going to be this savior king that God is going to send, and he's going to succeed where everyone else has failed, and his kingdom is going to be unlike every other kingdom. In fact, it's going to put away all other kingdoms. And we see through the prophets these promises where this this kingdom, it's going to last forever somehow. This king isn't going to die. He's going to reign forever and ever and ever. His reign is going to be perfect. He's going to be just, and he's going to be peaceful, and his laws are going to be good. Your life is radically affected by who is king over you, right? Think of the Lion King. You have Mufasa, good king, and there's green grass everywhere, and the wildebeests are happy, right? Everyone's having a great time, and then who takes over? Scar. And the grass is all dead, and there's elephant skulls everywhere, right? And injustice is all throughout right, the, the, the kingdom, and then when the king returns, Simba comes, and there's flourishing, and that's the promise we've been getting Right? That shows you how Christian Disney is. Uh, they don't even know it, right? They're, they're teaching the kingdom uh, message of the scriptures. Okay. Uh, right? That's the promise that we've been getting. A king is going to come, and he will never cease to reign. He'll put away all that was bad. He'll restore everything that was lost, and there will be glorious flourishing, and there will be joy in the streets, and nothing but good laws, and nothing but peace, and secure borders, and no badness will ever come in. Everything sad will become untrue when this king comes. I have a bunch of verses in your notes, by the way. I'm not going to read those, but that's just for your reference. All these promises of swords will be beaten into plowshares. There won't be any more war. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. This, this, these garden pictures of just peace. Right? All the dreams you've ever had of like, you see those GoPro videos of the guy who like is friends with lions and they come and hug him and you know he gets eaten the second the camera cuts away, but you watch it on YouTube and you're like, that is my, I can't, I would just love to do that, right? Riding bears, right? That's the picture that the scriptures give us of this glorious renewed kingdom, children leading bears and wolves and sitting on snake holes and things like that. And then everything that has been broken being healed when this king comes. There's unbelievable promises all throughout the scriptures as the people are in misery, saying that they are king and reigning wickedly, selfishly. God says one day a king will come and then silence for 400 years, not a prophet from Yahweh, not a word from God. Meanwhile, kingdom is overthrowing kingdom. Babylon overthrows Assyria. Persia overthrows Babylon. Greece overthrows Persia. Rome overthrows Greece. All while the people of God are saying, where is the king that's going to put our kingdom on top forever? We keep seeing another kingdom coming, and we are still oppressed 
And there's no prophet that comes. There's 400 years of silence between your Old and New Testament. And then, chapter 4, the arrival of the king comes for unto you is born this day in the city of David, the city of Bethlehem, where the king was promised to come, a savior who is Christ the Lord. The ruler is here. The master is here. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. We just finished singing that a lot. We're celebrating the arrival of the king. John the Baptist shows up as kind of the last prophet, the heralder of the good news. And what does he say? Matthew 3, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This man, we haven't heard anything from God for 400 years. And now finally a prophet is back. And what is he saying? The long-awaited time is over. The king is here, and he's coming to establish his kingdom. And we see Jesus' arrival. We've been preaching through Matthew, and so you've been seeing this almost every single week. Jesus' arrival, he shows up preaching the message of the kingdom. Matthew 4, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount, this great sermon we just spent half a year going through is the sermon of what is life like in the kingdom. Over and over again, we see things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Jesus, the king, is here to establish his kingdom. He tells us, how should you pray? What's the prayer Jesus puts into our mouths? Your kingdom come. Your will, your reign, and your rule be done here as it is in heaven. Everyone in the heavens obey you perfectly. Every angel obeys your assignment. Let that happen here like it was meant to in the garden. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. You rule here as you do on earth. That's what you and I are meant to pray. That's how Jesus teaches us to pray. Jesus, in his preaching and teaching, is constantly talking about the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like this. He tells Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus talks about the kingdom more than everything else, and there is no close second of subjects, of themes that he talks about in his ministry. Why? Because he's the king, and he's here to restore what was lost in the garden. He's here to reestablish God's reign and God's rule and God's authority through him as the Messiah King. He's here to finally bring about the kingdom, but one of the things we'll constantly see is it's not the way everyone thinks. Everyone's thinking he's there to overthrow Rome. That's what Peter thinks when he makes the great confession. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, yes. And then Jesus says, I'm gonna go die. And Peter says, hang on a minute. No, 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 no. You misunderstood. Everyone else is supposed to die because you're going to kill them and establish the throne forever and ever. Peter rebukes him. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. You've got man's way of thinking flowing through your mind, not God's. He's not here to come after Rome. Rome will fall just like every other kingdom that's ever existed. He's here to come after the serpent. He's here to come after the enemy of 
the garden. He's here to go after sin that's been plaguing us since Genesis 3. He's here to kill death and to crush the head of the serpent. And he's not going to do it by doing what we would imagine him to do. He's going to forgive his rebels, those who have been unthinkably, high-handedly dethroning him, attempting to dethrone him since the beginning. He's not going to justly bring justice and just wipe us out, right, as he would rightly could. He's going to instead pardon us by taking our place. He takes the penalty for our crimes. He is wounded for our transgressions. He doesn't deal out the wounds as you would expect an angry king to. In fact, instead, he's wounded for us. He's going to lay down his heavenly robes to take on flesh that can be crucified. He's going to lay down his heavenly crown to take on a crown of thorns. On his cross that reads, King of the Jews, the King of the universe is dying in the place of those who have been trying to overthrow him. He's giving his life for ours. He's paying the debt that the rebels owe so that we can be declared clean and free and debtless and pardoned by the king. This king of the universe dies. This king of the kingdom dies. But, praise the Lord, there is victory on Easter. He raises from the dead. Death, where is your sting? All of the enemies are defeated. The serpent's head has been dealt a deadly blow. Sin has now been paid for. It has no more hold on you if you repent and trust in Jesus. And death has died in his resurrection. He's conquered death And even after his death, by the way, he goes about proclaiming the kingdom. Acts 1, he presented himself, this is after the resurrection, alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing before them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So he's still preaching the kingdom even after he's gone to the cross. And then we see he ascends. And the ascension, don't miss this, the ascension is not just Jesus going back to heaven. It's not just going back to be with God. You know, he came down, did some stuff, and went back. He's going to sit on his throne. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me, and he's going to sit at the right hand of God on his throne. God has put all things under his feet. He is going to reign and rule at the right hand of God. That's what we're getting uh, in uh, in the ascension. That's what we see in Philippians 2. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, does not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow to King Jesus in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He ascends and sits at the right hand. He is the center of the story of the kingdom, the king of the kingdom that succeeds where Adam fails. When he's tempted by the ancient serpent of old who takes him to the high temple and says, here's all the kingdoms of the world, I'll give them to you. I know why you're here. To establish the kingdom of God, I'll give you all the kingdoms if you'll just bow down to me. And he says, no. 
He succeeds where Adam fails. He's the perfect image of God, the exact image of God who perfectly represents God as Adam and Eve were meant to in the garden. You want to know what God is like? Look at his son, the exact representation, the exact image of God. He's the promised offspring of Abraham that all the nations, all the nations would be blessed through. Right? Israel, Abraham's family, is a part of God restoring all of creation, and he's the true Israel. He succeeds where Israel fails. He's the promised son of David. All God's promises, again, we've seen this time and time again in Matthew, find their yes and amen in him. He is the promised king creation has been longing for that will bring back God's perfect kingdom. And he's ascended and he's seated at the right hand of the Father right now, interceding for you, watching over this little lesson, praying for each one of you before the Father. That's chapter four. Chapter five of the story of the kingdom. The people of the kingdom, the church, right? His disciples, his people spread the good news of the king and the good news that the king has brought his kingdom. Jesus, King Jesus, right before he ascends, says to his people, commissions his people to go into the world and preach that he is king. Matthew 28, all authority, again, there it is, authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, verse 28, and I will be with you always to the end of the age. So we see here, the king of the kingdom commissions the people of the kingdom to spread the good news of the kingdom by the king's power. I will be with you. He hasn't just, he's not relying on your charismatic ability to articulate something or dominate an atheist in a debate. He brings the power to transform and bring those who are rebels into the kingdom as citizens, as pardoned citizens. So you, as, as the church, we, we are the people of the kingdom. Again, the scriptures say our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, Philippians 3. Colossians 1, he, the Father, has delivered us from the dominion of darkness, right, from the kingdoms of the world ruled by the serpent, ruled by the devil, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. You have been pulled out of the dark kingdoms of the world, and your citizenship now rests in the kingdom of God because of the king's work in his death, burial, and his resurrection. So you are the people of the kingdom. You've been commissioned to carry the message of the kingdom. I have a whole bunch of verses there uh, all throughout Acts to show the, the gospel, the apostles spreading and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Acts even ends with Paul in Rome in prison talking to people about the kingdom of God, right? They're obeying Jesus' commission to go and preach the good news of the king. And the church, if you want to think about it this way, I think Jonathan Lehman uh, really helpfully frames it this way. The church uh, is like an embassy of the kingdom. So this is why us gathering on the Lord's Day is so absolutely central to your life because you as ambassadors of Christ, it is a, a foretaste, if you will, a preview of the eternal kingdom. So think about it. We are gathering with the citizens of the kingdom, right? That's why we call each other brother and sister, right? We're, we've been adopted into the family of God. We're citizens of the kingdom. We were worshiping the king of the kingdom, hearing his decrees, hearing from his word, being transformed by it and worshiping the king of the kingdom. Baptism is our 
public declaration that we have left the dark kingdoms of the world and we're being initiated. It's almost like a citizenship ceremony, right? Old me is dead. The one who lived for themselves, who was king of their own heart, that person is dead. I'm now alive in the king as a citizen of the kingdom. That's what's being declared publicly in baptism and in communion. It's the meal of the kingdom. It's a foretaste of the marriage supper of the lamb. That's what we do every week, not because it's little rituals. That's just kind of like what Christianity has gathered to be our religious exercises, but because it's a foretaste of eternity. If you don't like Sunday, you're going to hate heaven, just, you know, just to burst your bubble a bit. You'll be with your brothers and sisters, worshiping your king, seeing him face to face, dining at his table, rejoicing in him forever with ever-increasing joy as you gaze into the glorious face of your king. And that's a taste of what we get here on Sunday as little kind of embassies of the kingdom. And we await the final chapter, which is the return of the king. We live in this weird in-between space that's sometimes called the church age, where the kingdom is both now and not yet. The king has come 2,023 years ago. Dates are a little off, but uh, he came and he established his kingdom and he freed us from our sin and he established his kingdom, but we're still awaiting his return where he will put away all of his uh, enemies. Sin will be no more. He will truly heal everything and the kingdom will be perfectly consummated. So we're in this world. We're on mission to declare the rule of the king as we await, as we Pray, come, Lord, quickly. And then the final chapter where we're shown in Revelation, the king will return, Revelation 22. Behold, I am coming soon. He will come. His enemies will be defeated. Revelation 20 is just the total victory of God as the devil is defeated and cast into the lake of fire. All of the devil's followers are defeated and cast into the lake of fire. Death is defeated, finally enthroned into the lake of fire. Sin will be no more. Every tear will be wiped away. Everything bad will be made untrue, and the perfect kingdom will be established. Revelation 11, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. We see this Beautiful picture at the end of Revelation, Revelation 21, where we see a new heavens and a new earth. Again, look, think of the garden. Heaven and earth are now together again. What was ripped apart because of rebellion against the king is now together again, walking with the Lord in the cool of the day. Verse 5, and he who was seated on the throne, there's the king, who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Everything that was broken, that was lost, has been put together. So we see this glorious, uh, all the promises of the beautiful kingdom will be realized when the king returns, which is why we should long for it and pray, come, Lord, quickly. Revelation 22, 1. Then the angel showed me a river of life that bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. There he is seated on his throne. There's this river flowing out. And what does verse 2 say it is? This river goes and it what heals the nations. You almost have this beautiful garden imagery of plants and abundance and fruit, all that was fractured in Genesis 3 when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom is perfectly healed. 
We won't need the sun anymore. Verse 5, the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Every knee will bow, and most glorious in the eternal kingdom, we will be with the king. It's not just that we are in this incredible kingdom. It's that we sit at the king's table, and we'll see him face to face. Isaiah 33, 17, your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. That's where our story ends. That's how the scriptures end. Begins with the king creating his beautiful kingdom, his garden kingdom, us meaning to reign and rule on his behalf and destroying it, fracturing it, and God sending his glorious son, the eternal king, to reestablish, which he will ultimately do when he comes again and puts away all of his enemies and reigns forever and us with him in his glorious kingdom. You see that red thread throughout the scriptures. So I want to end just by thinking about practical applications. That's a big Bible lesson, right? So how does that transform your life? And I want to, uh, just a quick word about practical, that word practical. Uh, Most of the time what we mean is I want five steps to do something, which is fine. It's not bad. Uh, those will be the, the best-selling books, you know, Five Steps to a Healthy Marriage or to a Healthy Life or the, the Daniel Fast, which, by the way, the whole point of that story is that they were fatter than everybody else, more plump, not skinnier. Uh, but anyway, uh, that stuff's fine, but it's not best because that's not how the Bible says we're actually changed. The Bible says we are transformed by what? The renewing of our mind. And that doesn't mean go study academically and just drink in a whole lot of head knowledge and be smart, then you'll be transformed. What Paul's getting at there in Romans is the reality that because we are in sin, because we are all Adam's sons and we have this, uh, we're born into sin, every bit of us is corrupted by sin. We naturally, by our sinful nature, see everything wrongly. You don't have to teach a kid to be selfish because a kid, by his birth, thinks, I'm king. I get this toy, and I will assault Joe if she tries to take it from me, right? That's how kids work because that's how sin works, and that's seeing the world totally backwards. And so how are you actually transformed? How does your life actually change? Renew your mind to ultimate reality, that you are not king and that God is king. So... Practical steps are great, but something that will actually transform everything will be having, uh, totally flipping the way you wrongly see the world. So my eyes are bad. Reading a lot and studying Greek and Hebrew makes your eyes bad, or at least made my eyes bad. And so I would ask my doctor, how do I prevent the blurriness that happens? And he gave me practical things. Uh, 20, 20, 20, 20. Every 20 minutes, look 20 yards away, blink 20 times for 20 seconds or something like that, which is great. I don't know if it works, but I do it. Great practical step. Here's what I ultimately need, an updated prescription. I need new glasses because 2020-2020 might slow the blurring, but it's still blurry. I'll have to get up real close to you. I'd be a close talker unless I get a new prescription. And the scriptures are saying, read God's word and get a new prescription. That's what's most practical for you, right? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So I have a couple uh, practical, if you will, things for you. There's a billion applications for obviously Jesus as the king of the kingdom. I'll give you 
three, three ways to renew your mind around this reality. And the first is just the biggest, meditate. Drink in the reality that Jesus is king, that history is about him, that your life is his, that he is holding you and the rest of the universe together at this moment. All things were made by him and for him. Everything exists for him. The trees raise their branches to praise his name. The mountains reach up to the sky to sing his praise. And your heart beats to serve him and to live for him. And so it's resolution time. Uh, Something you could do is think through what are all the actual practical elements of my life and ask the simple question, is this surrendered to King Jesus? Does this exist for his glory? Does my budget exist for his kingship glory? Is it surrendered to his reign? Is my calendar, my time, surrendered to his reign? Who's king over this calendar? Who's king over my conversations? And my super holy Sunday and then everything else is different. He reigns over me over a couple hours or does he have your whole life? Are your relationships, who's king over your relationships, over your job? By the way, that's how you're going to get unthinkable purpose. You're no longer just working for a paycheck. You're working to be a good steward for the king who's given you these gifts for this work. You see that, how it just absolutely transforms everything that you do. Is is your purpose, why you exist, what you're doing. Are you making disciples? Are you obeying the Great Commission? Do you strategically know your neighbors so that you might tell them about the king of the universe? Are you viewing your relationships within the church as who's discipling me? Who's pouring into me and pointing me to this king's reign? And who am I discipling and saying, how does the Lord reign over your life? Think through just those different elements of your life and surrender to his joyous rule. Your sinful flesh will hate it, but it will be glorious. The only way to be free is to be a slave to the right master, is to be a servant of the right king. So meditate that Jesus is king. Secondly, meditate on the realities that you are a citizen of the kingdom. Whatever that looks like, whether it's five minutes, you just take a journal and write out, what does it mean for me to be a citizen of the kingdom while living as uh, an American, right? And you either write out, this is my identity, right? Okay, what does that mean? I'm, I've been pardoned by the king, which means all guilt, all shame that comes into my life is not from him. There is no condemnation from this king for those in Christ Jesus. Just think through all the implications that you've been made a citizen. Your passport is for the kingdom of God. Your hopes, here's a huge one, As the kingdoms of this world get crazier, as they always have, one, expect them to, right? Jesus says that over and over again. Everyone's going to hate you because you follow me. He tells you all the time. But he finishes that sentence by saying, take heart, I've overcome the world. I'm king. I don't care how wacko America gets. America's not on the throne. I'm king of the throne. Find your hope in him. Don't let fear rule your life as you meditate on the reality that you're a citizen of the eternal kingdom. And then lastly, actually, second to last thing, second to last within that, most important, fellowship with your king. Oh, my goodness. He hears you when you pray. He knows your name. He loves you. He longs for you. When you wake up early to go read your Bible, you're not you know, wrestling to go yell at God. He's the one that opened your eyes. 
and is drawing you to his word that he gave you, by the way. He hears your prayers and he longs to be with you. I will be with you always to the end of the age. Abide in me. Commune with me. I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come back for you. He knows you. He loves you. Go drink in the life and the joy of King Jesus. Fellowship with your king. You're a citizen of his kingdom. And then lastly, engage in the mission of the kingdom. Pray your kingdom come. Pray the Lord's Prayer often. If it's ritualistic, pray that your heart will be changed. Jesus says, pray like this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Spread the good news of the king. Evangelize. Tell people that Jesus reigns. Get to know them and show them how the problems of their life are ultimately only answered in the gospel. In surrendering to King Jesus, make disciples. Engage in the mission of the kingdom. You see that. It's not a, I'm giving you practical things, but ultimately what we need is an updated prescription. We need the scripture's prescription to see the world rightly, like Calvin said at the beginning, to see God rightly. He's king of the universe and to see ourselves rightly. We're not king. He's king, but we're citizens of his glorious kingdom. Okay. Let me say a quick thing about resources. I'll pray, and we might have a couple minutes for, for Q&A. Uh, I put at the bottom of this uh, resources, some books. Some are short, some are long. You can look at the page number on Amazon before you buy, uh, buy them. One of the things I'm super jealous for for you guys is to have good voices flowing in your ears. Uh, we live in a day of an embarrassment of riches. You can listen to like any pastor in the world. There's so many uh, incredible websites where they just you know, get pastors to write incredible articles about theology and the scriptures, and you can read it for free, right? But there's also, with the good, there's a lot of bad. So view me as your filter. Uh, if you're paralyzed with fear that the world is coming for you, you probably just need to unsubscribe from some of the voices that are just terrifying you and not pointing you to King Jesus throughout the week. Uh, so I want to put voices in your ear that will point you to the hope of the gospel, not the terror of how bad the world is getting. The world's getting worse. It will get worse, and the king will return. Read the Bible, right? Uh, I want to put people that point you to that reality. Jesus is king over the throne. He is not caught by surprise by all this crazy stuff that the world is doing, but there's rest in this dark valley because the shepherd is with me. The king is with me, okay? So please email me if you are wanting that. I would love to put good voices in your ears, and here's some good books uh, that about one, uh, just how the Bible is one story, that Bible is one story section. That's just a good overview to show the Bible not as 66 random books, but one story about Jesus. And then another about specifically this theme, uh, the kingdom. And we'll be doing that throughout uh, the semester as we highlight different themes. We're going to give you good resources if you want to dive deeper since these are all 10,000 foot stuff. Okay. So let me pray for us and then might have time for a question or two. There's Tim. Okay, you were hiding behind a pillar. Okay. Father, we love you. Thank you for your glorious king. I pray that we would uh, be his ambassadors and that when people look at our lives, though we are sinners, uh, we are abiding in the Savior and that we, they would see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives and say, who is your God? Because I want to worship him as well. So mold us. Thank you for your word and thank you for your king, son, Jesus and your glorious kingdom that is coming, we pray, come Lord quickly in your son's name. Amen.